Are you ready to hire your first employees for your membership business? And if you are, how in the world do you go about doing it? That's what we're going to dive into on today's episode of the Membership Guys podcast. Let's do this. You're listening to the Membership Guys podcast, bringing you proven practical tips and advice from the leading experts on growing a successful membership business each and every week. And now, here's your host, Mike Morrison. Well, hello there. Welcome to episode 318 of the Membership Guys podcast. Today, we're talking about a pretty big topic, hiring your first employees for your membership business. So you might already have had some people working with you on a freelance basis, on a subcontractor basis, where these are people who essentially work for themselves or their third-party companies that you either bring in for one-off tasks or as needed, Or maybe they do some regular stuff for you and then they bill you at the end of every month with an hourly rate, all right? So perhaps you're already doing that. And if you're not, check out themembershipguys.com slash 186 for some tips on the sort of tasks that you might look to start outsourcing to contractors or to other companies. But perhaps you have reached a point where you need more, where you have consistent tasks, consistent responsibilities that you would benefit from having someone permanent in place to take care of. So it's not just little bits and pieces here and there. It's not occasional projects that maybe you only need every few weeks or every few months. A consistent amount of work, consistent things that need taken care of in your business that either you don't want to do anymore, you are running out of time for, or they're currently being neglected within your business. And, you know, you really need someone to be taking care care of this stuff. So this might be the point at which you first look at bringing on a permanent employee, someone who works directly for you. Now, in terms of timing and when to hire, I think a lot of the time, obviously it comes down to the work that you you have that needs doing. So what workload is there? Is there enough work to justify bringing on an employee? Is there so much going on that it's causing you stress? So you're working, you know, 80 hour weeks. If you're working 80 hours, then you can bring on someone to work 40 hours and you can work a lot less, right? So obviously the workload and the things that need doing in your business, the objectives of your business will define when the need is in terms of when is right, often this will come down to finances. Now, actually, before we go any further, I do need to say I'm not an expert on recruitment. I'm not an expert in in hiring, you know, dozens and dozens or hundreds and hundreds of members of staff. Uh, so this is coming from my own experience. We recently went through a recruitment drive here in the membership. We brought on several new members of staff for the Membership Guys and Membership Academy. It's also coming from, of course, um, our dealings with clients and stuff like that. But by no means am I an expert. I'm just sharing my experiences and what's worked for us in the hope that it will be useful to you as well. So if you are a recruitment company, if you are uh, someone who's hired thousands of members of staff and you take issue with anything that I say, uh, don't tweet me on this, basically. All right, I'm admitting that you probably know more, a hell of a lot more than I do. I'm just sharing my experience. So in terms of when the time is right to hire, I believe this mostly comes down to finances. 
I believe that you should be able to easily afford to hire someone, especially if it's your first employee. So you should be making enough, you should make enough in profit so that after all of your expenses, after you paid yourself, what is left? What is left should be more than enough to easily afford to hire a new member of staff especially your first one, because there are so many hidden costs outside of just paying their salary. There are taxes on top of taxes, pensions, expenses, equipment. There's usually increased software costs, increased accounting costs, some legal and some HR service costs. Um, You know, usually you'll be getting things like contracts drawn up for the very first time. There's a cost to that. All of these kind of things, you need to be in a position really where you have plenty of financial resource. If you take the expected salary for a full-time employee or part-time if you're looking at that and multiply it by 1.5, that's probably closer to how much it'll cost you over the year for your new member of staff. And that might be lowballing it. And this should be money that you could afford to lose. So that's what we're talking about. It kind of needs to almost be disposable income in your business that's my perspective some people might not agree with it but you know i'd much much rather you hold off on recruiting someone and bringing someone permanent full-time into your business until you have more than enough financial means to actually do it so if you're not there yet maybe hold off don't fall into the trap of thinking hey on my own i make a hundred thousand dollars a year in my business so If I bring in someone else and there's two of us, then I'll make $200,000 a year. The whole notion and the assumption that a new staff member will pay for themselves is risky. That's not to say that they can't, that's not to say that they won't, but if your ability to pay their salary relies 100% on your business making more money through their addition, that's not always going to be guaranteed, especially especially with your first staff where you're dealing with so many unknowns. It's too risky. Now, you might be up for a bit of risk, but if you're more cautious, more risk-averse, then avoid this logic because you're gambling not just with your business but with someone else's livelihood too. If you get someone on board in your business and you're only going to be able to pay them if they help your, their addition increases your business revenue that year, and if it doesn't, and they're going to be out of a job, there might have been other jobs they could have taken at the same time that were more stable, where they weren't taking a punt, they weren't taking a risk. So it's not just your life, it's not just your livelihood. Don't mess around with this. Don't take the gamble. Don't employ people out of desperation when you're in a financial hole and you're trying to turn things around. Just don't. Don't rush it. I remember the last job that I ever had was with a fairly new marketing consultancy all the way back in kind of, man, this was like mid to late 2000s. They turned over £55,000 in their first year. You know, decent enough, one man band, one woman band even. Um, 55000 in their first year. In year two, they turned over £220,000. And so the mindset the CEO had was, hey, we scaled by four times. We 4 x our business from year one to year two. We did 55, then we did 220, which is around about four times more, right? 
if we continue that pattern and there's no reason to think we won't, next year we'll do 880. That's four times more again. And she thoroughly bought into that logic. And with that logic, she went out and she hired six new members of staff, one of which was me and I did not come cheap. And she hired them all at the same time. The company folded six months later after going into massive debt and failing to pay a huge tax bill. Because of course it did. So again, don't risk it. Don't take the gamble. Don't employ out of delusion. Don't employ out of desperation. Only hire full-time employees when you have the means to do so. And when you're in a position where you could afford to lose the money you will spend on them. If you're not there yet, stick to freelance as and when needed. Okay, so what kind of roles are you going to hire for? You'll know this, you'll know your business better than me. Common roles that you will typically bring in an in-house employee for will be for things like marketing, will be for things like content management in particular within memberships. Memberships usually produce a lot of content. In terms of the things that take up most of your time day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, generally it'll be content production, content management. You also have community management as well. So marketing, sales and marketing, content management, community management, these tend to be the more common employed roles that will be top of the list with memberships. Depending on how you're doing things, you might also be looking at bringing someone in as an employee to handle the tech side of things. Again, depends how complex your membership site is. Usually general maintenance on a fairly standard kind of even WordPress membership site. It's not going to be enough to justify your full-term employee, but if you also, you know, maybe you offer things like software, maybe you offer tech support, um, maybe you have multiple membership sites or a very complex setup, it might be worth having someone in-house for that. Design, graphic design. Again, if you do, if you create a lot of visual material or, you know, if you want to maintain a particularly high standard if you want things like motion graphics and all that sort of stuff having a full-time designer on the payroll can be a godsend and again little things creative uh elements like video editing audio editing if these are things that are consistently big tasks that you do they take up a lot of time and they are consistent it's not just every quarter you need someone to edit 10 hours worth of video and that's your quarter done and then you don't really need them. This stuff, the need, the requirement, the work they'll be doing needs to be consistent, right? So these are the more common types of roles. There'll certainly be others, but for your first employee, these are probably the things you're looking at. In terms of which ones to prioritize, who you should hire, I think you either hire for the things you're not doing or you're not doing enough of or you're not doing as well as you would like. So the things you know you need to be doing. If you're not marketing your membership in any way other than extremely basic, couple of social media posts, couple of emails, then bringing in someone on the marketing side of things to take care of the stuff that you're not doing, to help you exploit and explore opportunities that you're missing out on because you just don't have the time, then that could be a priority. Alternatively, hire someone to do the stuff that is getting in the way. So if you're finding yourself spending half of your week editing video 
and it's taking half of your week because you're not a video editor or maybe you can do it well but this isn't these aren't the skills that pay your bills right you're not running a video editing membership you shouldn't be spending half your week doing video editing that is stuff that could be getting in the way of you doing bigger things of you really using your skill set of you essentially showing up in the best way possible for your your business then hire someone to take care of that and hire them to do it better than you're doing it right now don't just hire someone to perform the task at its current standard hire someone to be better than you to level your business up think about when you're considering who should we hire first consider what will it make possible what opportunities will having this person on board now make available to me how much of my time will it free up and how will I use that time and how will it benefit the business? That'll help you to crystallize which role is a priority for you. Next thing to think about, so we thought about, you know, is a freelancer employee, when should you hire? Which roles to hire for first? Next thing to think about, logistics. So location is a big one here. Keep in mind, you're likely only going to be hiring in your local country for a variety of reasons. Depending on where you are, it can be extremely complicated to hire contracted employees in a different country. Tax, legal, all sorts of stuff. It gets messy if you want a permanent employee to be from a different country. If it's freelance, if it's outsourced, that becomes a non-issue. If they're employees, in almost all circumstances, you're going to want to recruit from the country that you're in. You also need to decide whether you're going to be office-based, in which case you're probably only going to be looking for employees locally, or whether you'll be working on a remote working position where they could be anywhere in the country. Generally, you're going to be all in on one or the other. You don't want to kind of be half and half because it will cause issues if you have three full-time members of staff who are in an office every day and then one guy who's just at the other end of the country, never stepped foot in the office, no one's ever met, nobody ever sees in person. You can make it work, but the dynamic is always going to be a little bit off. You can be office-based, but still flexible, that's all fine. But you kind of need to figure out what your logistics are in terms of whether you're hiring locally whether you're hiring around the country and how that fits, whether it's office-based, remote working, whatever. So think about those logistics. Once you've figured out who you're hiring, you've figured out where you're going to be looking, country-wide or just locally, then you want to look at writing up a job description. So think about the sort of qualities you're looking for, what the duties of the role will be, what superpowers or what personality traits and what skills are you particularly looking for? What experience? Are there specific qualifications they need? Now, I'm not a big, big fan of putting too much stock in qualifications. A big part of that is because I'm self-taught um, and you know, probably most of the best people at their jobs that I've ever encountered didn't have a little piece of paper saying they once studied a course about it. So your perspective on that might change, but... If you are requiring certain qualification, again, think about that and start to write up notes, bullet point lists under those headings, qualities, duties, superpowers, experience, education. 
Think about whether there's any specific tools or software that you'd want them to have working knowledge of. Think about the must-haves and the nice-to-haves. And it's good to be able to identify which is which. There's some stuff that should that'll probably put an application over the edge, but it's not a deal breaker, right? So identify what of your requirements are must-have and what are simply nice-to-haves that will help people out. And as I said, don't get too hung up on formal qualifications. If someone could do the job, they've proven they can do the job. If they get results, they're qualified enough. I don't have a single formal qualification in the field of memberships because there are no formal qualifications relevant to my field. But even with sales, with marketing, with the tech side of things, design, programming, and so on, I'm self-taught right across the board. And I'd like to think I'm pretty good at those things right? I mean, I I am. (laughs) Just to blow my own trumpet, but I am. If you're struggling to think of what your requirements are, try to picture for the ideal person, what does their week look like, an average week? What tasks are they going to be completing daily? What's the first thing they do when they start work in the morning? What do they do in an afternoon? Like, Try and actually literally put yourself in the shoes of someone who might be doing this job what will their week look like? How will they function in your business? What aspects of your membership are they involved in? What are they doing day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month? What key responsibilities do they have? What do they, what do they have ownership on? What's theirs? What is the thing they can sit down and come up with plans for without your instruction, without your guidance? Just write this stuff out. Is it consistent? Are the things that you see them doing day-to-day, week-to-week, is it all stuff of a similar nature? Does it fit within the same kind of category of work, the same sort of skill set, the same disciplines? The reason I say that is because quite often people think that they can find a unicorn, someone who can do absolutely everything, not a jack-of-all-trades, a master of all trades, a razor-sharp marketer, who can build amazing websites from scratch, edit podcasts, write amazing sales emails, design social media graphics, and fine-tune your sales funnel, all while managing your community, hosting your member webinars, dealing with customer service, and taking care of day-to-day admin. There are about 15 different disciplines in the mix right there. You're not going to find that unicorn, like, ever. So make sure you're being realistic in your expectations and consistent in the type of work that you would expect people in the roles you're hiring for to complete. And when it comes to your job description, something we find people are sometimes quite cagey about is telling people up front what the salary is going to be. Personally, I prefer full transparency. I prefer specifically saying this is the salary or even salary between this and this, salary starting from this, right? Like, why beat around the bush? Why keep it secret? If I see something where it just says salary is competitive, it makes me think, yeah, sure. Sure, it's competitive. If it was actually that attractive a salary, you'd tell people what it is, right? Maybe that's just me. People have different reasons for keeping this information uh, hidden. I don't. Be upfront. Because for me, specifying what the salary is just avoids the potential of people wasting their time. As an employer, I think it tells people I'm not messing around. I'm not going to make you go through a whole interview and application process for you to then later find out that I'm barely paying a living wage. 
It's not good for you. It's not good for me. I don't like wasting people's time. I don't like having my time wasted. And I might lose some real talented applicants. You know, if we go through a, a recruitment process and I'm loving everything I'm seeing and I'm thinking this person's amazing, but then I say, hey, would you be happy to come and do this for like 8,000 bucks a year? And I'm going to be, not only are they going to be offended, I'm going to be bummed out that we missed out on those people, right? So just say what the blooming salary is up front. <laughs> this is my perspective. Again, there might be good reasons you don't. I'm not coming to this as a recruitment expert. I'm sure there'll be at least one recruitment expert saying, well, actually, Mike, the reason you don't tell people what the salary is, is just tell them the salary. Just tell them the blooming salary. Anyway, it's a bit like, you know, hiding the pricing of your membership. Just tell people what it costs, man. Don't make people guess. Because if I've got to guess, if you've been caged, if you've been secret about it, I assume it's because I'm not going to like it, right? So write out the job description. Obviously, um, when fleshing out that job description, we're going to have to think about the kind of terms of employment. So what are the contract terms? So what we mean by this, how much are you going to pay? Um, again, so not just about stipulating the salary, what is the actual amount you want to pay? And for what amount of hours? So in terms of how much to, to pay, I I like to err on the generous side um, because I'm a kind, I was going to say I'm a generous guy, depends on context, but I think if you're looking for great people, to make your team and your business better, then you've got to pay for that. That comes with a cost. I think if you veer on the generous side of salary, and of course, you know, you can do research on similar roles, uh, both in and out of the membership industry. But if you earn towards the generous, then you're more likely to attract better people. And then once they come on board, it kind of avoids you being in that place where you're always fretting about losing them, about them going elsewhere for better money. Because someone might come in, they might love your company, they might love your job, but if the salary sucks, there's more risk that a time will come where they have to look at, okay, where do we make the compromise? Do I compromise on getting paid what I'm worth because I enjoy the job? Or... Do I compromise on how much I love the job in order to make sure I'm paying enough money to make ends meet? And quite often, circumstances will dictate that people have to put the money uh, put the money first. In an ideal world, people would put job enjoyment, fulfillment, and everything first. But you know what? That idealism isn't going to put food on the table, right? So again, you want to avoid a situation where you're worrying that you're going to lose integral parts of your business to someone who's a little more generous, then yeah, pay them a good wage, right? And I want good staff to be compensated well. I don't want them to even think about how much they're getting paid. I want it to be a non-issue. I don't want them to feel that they're undervalued or underpaid because that distracts them. It's going to affect their enjoyment of the work. It's going to affect how, how much a part of the team they feel, how committed and invested they are in making the business work. I want them to be compensated well and I want to constantly revisit that compensation and make sure that they continue to be compensated well. So again, you might not be so generous, but this is why I say, you know, you shouldn't be, 
You shouldn't be sitting down and saying, okay, we desperately need to hire this kind of role. We only have this much in the budget. We literally can't go a dollar more. This is why I say that I, I think when you're hiring someone permanently in a membership business where generally your membership business will be high profit margin anyway because we're not selling physical products and you know we're selling stuff that generally doesn't cost much to create because it's information, right? So you should be high margin anyway, but waiting until you have the means to offer a generous salary and to not be sitting there like stressing over whether you're now going to make enough in your business to cover it through the addition of this new member of staff. That's why I say to exercise patience and it's better to wait that little bit longer to get to a place where you can pay the sort of salary that's going to attract the right people. So anyway, so that's how much to pay what should the hours be? Well, typically, full-time role will be 30 to 40 hours a week. Uh, if it's part-time, generally, you're looking at 10 to 25 hours a week. If the amount of work that you would be looking for someone to do would be less than 10 hours, so if you're thinking, I want to hire someone part-time for eight hours a week, then I might be considering just sticking to the freelance subcontractor option uh, because the other costs involved and the likelihood that that eight hours might turn into five hours, might turn into three hours, there's probably more chance of that. So stick to the freelance option until perhaps you have a greater need for consistent uh, assistance within your business. So for us, when we recently brought on our staff, we went with 35 hours a week. So that's loosely nine to five, Monday to Friday, seven hours a day, if you take out an hour for lunch, so 35 hours. Decide whether you want people to work set hours or can they work whenever they want. Are you going to kind of loosely be based around the standard office hours of nine to five with a little bit of flexibility? That's kind of what we are. We're sort of loosely based around nine to five. But if someone wants to start at seven and finish at three, then they can. If someone wants to start at 10 and work till six, that's fine. As long as there's a general period of overlap where we have all the team active. So when we can do calls and, you know, when person A can speak to person B and speak to person C at the same time and, you know, make sure that everything flows. As long as there's a bit of an overlap where everyone's on the ball, then everything works. We don't get too hung up on the hours and you shouldn't either. Don't be one of those people who wants every single second accounted for and who hits the roof if someone only works 34 and a half hours this week instead of their full 35. Don't be one of those idiots who installs face tracking software on your staff's computers to ensure that they're always at their desk and they're always paying attention 100% of the time. Stuff like that, that micromanagement, that focus purely on counting the seconds someone works, it's not conducive to a positive working environment. Focus on the output, not the input. Hell, if someone can do everything we need them to, to a high standard... I don't care if they waste the first hour of the day watching silly YouTube videos. I don't care if they knock off early, if they take 90 minutes for lunch, if they nip out for a walk in the afternoon to clear their heads. What does it matter if the work is being done? If they're hitting deadlines, if they're hitting standards, if they're delivering. If having the breathing room of quote-unquote wasting time for 10 hours a week means that the other 25 hours generate amazing work, why the hell would I want to change that, right? If I force them to be chained to their desk for 35 hours of work, where not a second is wasted, 
will the output be the same as if I let them just goof around for 10 hours? Who knows, right? But you should focus on the output. The output matters so much more than the input. And I think particularly if you come from a management background, from the corporate world, from big organizations, where a lot of the time your role as a manager is just making sure people are at their desk, bang on time, that they're not wasting any time. I remember I used to work in in the financial industry in in banking um, and one of my earlier management roles, sort of my, my lower management roles before I kind of worked my way up, was team manager in the um, mortgage call center. And a big part of my role was literally watching the system that we used that monitored whether someone had marked themselves available to receive calls. If someone was sitting with not available, not ready, with their not ready button pressed for more than two minutes, we had to investigate why because they were wasting company time. I mean, that sort of mindset is so firmly ingrained in that world, but it just does not need to be ingrained in our world running memberships. That isn't how you should be approaching things. So I know we're kind of getting a little soapboxy here, but it's just to put you in the right mindset around expectations for hours worked by full-time or part-time employees. Yes, you're going to be saying you're employed for this amount on a full-time basis, 35 hours a week working whatever your your routine is. But keep in mind, like you're not chaining people to a desk, monitoring every second and make sure you get the full 35 hours. And if you don't get that, then they're ripping you off. They're wasting your time. They're taking you for a ride. Output matters so much more than input. Anyway, rant over. All right, so we know who we're hiring. We've figured out the logistics, the pay, the number of hours, we've written our job description. Where do we promote it? Where do we advertise this role? Uh, So start off with, I would say, your existing networks. I think if you've got an email list, social media following, even your existing membership, particularly for roles like community manager, where, you know, uh, experience of your community could come in handy, that could be your first port of call. Um, Obviously, be wary if you, you know, promote vacancies to existing members because if they you know you might have an existing member who applies for a job and then doesn't get it is that going to affect you know their membership are they going to stick around again just something to be conscious of but yeah start with your existing networks you know it may well be that people you're connected to can refer you know, friends or connections of their own who they know would be a good fit. And the fact that they know a little bit about you might make it so that any recommendations or referrals for applicants that they send your way are a better fit. Um, Follow that up by potentially looking at things like specialist job boards. Some industries have these. They have, you know, websites where you can advertise vacancies that are frequented by people within your particular sector. So research whether... Uh, such job board exists for your particular industry pay attention to whether they primarily advertise freelance positions or you know one-off jobs or whether they're advertising salaried positions you only really want to promote your uh your your role your vacancy on specialist job boards that advertise salaried positions because it's a completely different audience you don't want to be inundated with people saying well hey i can't do full-time however I'm available for $50 an hour. You don't need those people. 
Um, you might consider working with a recruitment company. So I would kind of start with existing networks, put it up on your own website, get it out to your email list, get it out to your following, get it out to your member base, your existing connections and network, get it onto jobs boards. That you will probably find um, will get you a decent amount of applicants. If not, then you might look at speaking to a recruitment company. It's not always going to be the right option. So I'd probably only go down this route if the others don't get you any good applications. The reason I say that is because online businesses and particularly things like online memberships, they're quite niche types of businesses. They're not your typical traditional business model. So there's a lot of recruitment companies out there who simply will not understand what we do. They don't understand the model. They might not understand your staffing requirements and they may not have the reach into the sorts of places and the sort of talent pool that is suited to this type of business and this type of role. Now, that's an extremely, extremely broad assessment. And if you're a recruiter out there violently shaking your head right now, then that's awesome. You probably already know that you're the exception and not the norm, but it can be a lot harder for someone to find a recruiter who understands and gets the online membership model. It can be a lot harder to find that right person versus finding someone who says, oh, of course I get it, I can still help, but actually they just don't understand what we're looking for and they're not right. So that's not a rule out recruitment companies completely, but results with a recruitment firm will almost certainly vary more than if you were recruiting for a more traditional type of business. So hopefully by getting it out to existing networks and online jobs boards, hopefully you'll get enough solid applicants there's always the potential route of going with a recruitment company um, if you don't have any joy going down those paths. So in terms of the application process, we like to have an application form on your website so you can use, if you're you know running a WordPress website, there's a lot of plugins for creating forms. Um, have open questions within your application form. So questions like, what attracts you to this role and makes you want to work with us? What skills and experience do you bring to the table that make you the perfect person to join our team? So the types of things that will elicit a more open response where they have to you know, really think about how to present themselves. And in doing so, you get a taste for their writing style, for you know their ability to write in complete sentences, use punctuation, um, even a sense of their personality if they're, you know, a little too casual, a little too formal or whatever, you'll get a little more of an insight if you're asking open questions as opposed to closed ones like, do you have this qualification? Have you ever done this? Have you ever done that? Ask uh, as part of the application process for applicants to attach their CV or their resume to the application form itself or to email it to you directly. If you ask for that CV, that resume, it means you can avoid uh, your application form needing to have certain questions that the CV, the resume will cover. You don't want to have too many questions on your application form. You don't want it to be overly bloated and you don't want repetition of information like previous employers or a list of education history that will, by standard, be found within an average resume. So, you know, don't make them type or copy that stuff out again that's going to elicit hopefully better responses to your more open questions and then they can send that uh, that information employers education history all that sort of stuff through with their resume 
You might ask applicants to record a short welcome video. That can give you a little taste of their personality and also their level of comfort of being on camera, of recording video. If that's something that will be part of their job, then that can be crucial. So for example, with our community manager, part of their responsibility is sending personal welcome videos to our members. So it's important to get an idea of whether the applicant can actually handle that. So asking them to record what is essentially a welcome video for us during the application process for that position is a good way to verify, you know, can they do this? How do they come across on camera? Because that is obviously going to be a factor in how good a fit they'll be for this role. For some positions, you might even ask for examples of work, especially if it's a creative role like graphic designer, web developer, video editor, or something else where they can provide a portfolio and a link to examples. Have a set closing date for applications and then assuming that you received some applications, you can then review them all. And what we like to do is put them into three groups. So you have a group of the definite no's. So the ones that just don't fit the bill, they don't have the experience, they they clearly do not tick some essential must-have boxes. They have none of the skills you've asked for. They've applied for a full-time role, but they can only work part-time, or they're trying to get you to hire them on a freelance basis. This will happen. You will get applications that say, well, I know you said you're looking for this, but... I don't know why people do it, but those go very clearly into the definite no pile. The second group are the definite interviews, the people who stand out where you can say that unless they totally screw up the interview, you'd be happy saying yes to any of them. Ideally, you want no more than three or four candidates going into that definite next stage, definite interview group. So if you have a lot of really great applicants, if you've got 10, 15, 20 people where you could envision yourself easily saying yes to any of them, then that's great, but just look at whether you can up your standards for what definitely moves people to the next stage. And then the ones who are left, they are the maybes. They're the ones that you're not totally sold on, but who might be worth interviewing if your first choice applicants mess up the interview or something comes out that makes you realize they're not the right fit. It might feel a little mean and impersonal to group people like this, but I mean, you simply can't offer everybody an interview. You don't have the time and actually I'd argue that it's a little, it's even meaner to offer someone an interview when you just know they're not really likely to progress any further. So your interview, it could be remote via something like Zoom if it's a remote position or again if you're going to be office based if you're locally based in person. And really you should already have all of the information you need about the candidate before the interview. For me, the interview isn't about finding out new things or, you know, having the applicant repeat stuff they've said during the application. For me, the interview is about two things. One, getting a sense of what the candidate is like, how they communicate, how they come across and so on. And second, it's an opportunity to gain clarity or further understanding of information they gave in their application. If they express that they're excited about the role, okay, that's great. What is it that excites them? If they're currently running their own business, but they've applied for an employed position, well, what prompted that decision? And do they have any concerns that they'd maybe one day get the itch and go back into self-employment? That's the one that came up a couple of times in our own recent recruitment drive. And if it's a creative role, 
then you might also consider asking applicants to complete a small sample project. So for example, when we were recruiting for a graphic designer, we asked the three applicants who were in our yes, definite interview stage list, we asked them to design a basic concept with some examples for social media graphics that we would use in our advent calendar promotion, which is something we do every December. So this is a sample project that's rooted in something that they would actually then go on to be doing within the business. And indeed, when we chose our graphic designer, the first thing we had them do when they came in was take the concept that they did during the sample project and take it further and actually implement it for that campaign. If you're hiring a video editor, you might ask them to edit a single video. Perhaps you even record a video where you deliberately make some mistakes or some things that need fixing so you can then assess how good they do at catching that stuff. Again, the sort of thing that they would be doing as part of their responsibility, as part of their role, if they're successful. Now, if you do this kind of sample project, it's very important, in my opinion, that you pay people for this, whether they're successful or not. I'm totally against the idea of asking people for free. A lot of people abuse this. You hear horror stories of people basically faking job vacancies in order to get creative designers, highly talented people, to produce sample projects for free that they then go off and and use without ever paying anyone. Absolutely not something you should do. Make sure you pay people if you're having them do this sort of sample project successful or unsuccessful they get paid it's okay for you to kind of stipulate the amount they don't have to quote you for it but make sure it's fair compensation similar to what you would pay them if you hired them as a freelancer so hopefully this whole process and going through all this it'll help you reach a place where you have great applicants you make your choice based on what you learn in the interview based on sample projects or whatever once you picked your applicant, then there's some boring but important stuff you want to take care of. And I apologize to anyone whose uh, who's job or specialism falls into the things I'm going to say are boring. Um, I might want to change that. Um, but yeah, there's some very, very important stuff you want to take care of that maybe you might not have thought of or, you know, isn't the sort of thing that... Um, you know, you find exciting, but it's crucial, right? So if it's your first employee, you're going to have to speak to an accountant about any changes you need to make in terms of how your business is structured, how your tax uh, processes will be changed, implementing payroll and so on. You also need to look at whether you need insurance, employer's insurance, public liability, if they're going to be office-based. And it pays to have an HR professional draw up a contract and advise on things like health and safety requirements, record keeping, your obligations around paid leave, sick pay, holidays, and so on. With all of that sort of stuff taken care of, then you should write up a formal offer letter confirming salary hours and also start date, and send it to your successful applicant asking them to confirm they'd like to accept the role. If they do, then you can send them their contract along with anything else your HR representative might need you to have them sign. If it is a remote role, there's lots of services like DocuSign where they can kind of sign it digitally and it'll do the trick. And then it's official. Make sure that your accountant gets a heads up to let them know, okay, it's all going ahead, such and such has accepted the role, they'll be starting on this date at this salary. 
make sure you tell them in advance so they can set them up on payroll and you know at the right time they can draw up a pay slip and either you know instruct you to to make payment or if they're handling payroll for you then they do that and depending on where you're based you may have different places you need to register them as employees with as well and then we wait well we don't we prepare we prepare for their start date look at what you need to have ready for them or set up for them from day one so what systems do you need to give them access to do you need to invite them to your slack channel do you need to give them access to the company facebook page do you need to buy them equipment Maybe there's some books or some training programs that you want to enroll them in that will help them to better understand your industry or to sharpen up their skills. Or to understand what memberships are all about. And by the way, behind the membership, the book behind the membership by myself and Callie, that's a really good one if you want to get someone who's not accustomed with online memberships, if you want them to really get the world of memberships. Just saying, available on Amazon and in all good bookstores. <laughs> but think about this stuff. What do you need to buy? What do you need to set up? What do you need to arrange? What training videos might you need to create? What processes do you need to ensure you have documented? It's no longer enough for this stuff to just be in your head. You've got other people in your business who need to know how to do things the way they should be done. You need documentation. You need processes. You need systems. You need training material and all that sort of stuff. And just like we need an onboarding strategy in our membership for our new members, we need one for our new team members too. So again, you're going to have their start date. Generally find that the beginning of the month is best for simplicity. But from there, you want to map out, okay, what do you need to do on day one? And that's usually going to be get them on the systems, introduce some of the team, this, that, and the other. But then plan out their first four weeks. Generally in, in kind of a decreasing amount of detail. So the first week will be more detailed in terms of the specific things you're doing on specific days. Week two, you might have an idea of what you're doing on set days. Weeks three and four, it's more of an idea of what you want to do that week. So, you know, you're not getting too painted into a corner in terms of what will be done and when, because, you know, some things might take them longer. Some things you might need to go over twice. Some things they might get a little faster. Um, so you might need to change your onboarding plans, but you need a plan. What do you need to do to get them up to speed on what your business is doing? So do you want them to consume any of your membership content to spend time in the community or so on? So think about stuff like that. That'll help them kind of get up to speed and ease in. And then for any major repeating tasks in your business. So if there's anything that's a, a key part of their role that you're going to have them do every week, every month, whatever, then you need a process where you're essentially handing over work that you're doing yourself right now to them. So for this, you could start by having them shadow you. So you literally get together on a Zoom call or sit next to each other in the office and you walk through the task and they watch and they observe. And as they do so, you can talk through what you're doing, why you're doing it, the sort of things you think about um, when you're making decisions and so on. So you do that a couple of times and then you move on to collaborating on something. So you're working on it together. You're sitting next to each other and for every step, you're not just doing it and have them watch. You're discussing it. It's then being done. Then it's on the next thing. So it's, you know, you're working on it together 
And then finally, you get to a place where you go through the process and it's them doing it themselves with you shadowing them. So you observing, you making sure they're doing things right, you being available for them to ask you if they're stuck on anything. So I did this with our content manager uh, when she first started uh, for our podcasting process. So initially, I did it myself. I walked through the process. She watched via Zoom. She, I shared my screen. She could see everything I was doing. She could hear me. I would kind of make an effort to think out loud. So little things like, you know, deciding what I was going to title the podcast or writing the introduction to the show notes. Again, being able to kind of say, you know, I, I, I like, I tend to prefer shorter sentences or for a topic like this, I tend to avoid doing this. Or if we're going to link to related resources, here's generally how I choose what to link to. So you're talking through, you're getting them into your brain. And that's what I did with our content manager um, so that she got a grasp on my approach and the sort of decisions she would then have to make why I did things a certain way. So we did that for a couple of episodes. Then we did a couple collaboratively where she do some parts, I do other. We talk through decisions and, you know, decide on what we were doing together. And then after a couple of episodes like that, it was over to her to do things her way with me observing and answering any questions she had along the way. So that transition and that easing into things has meant that she's been able to just nail it ever since, which I'm not sure would have been as smooth if I just recorded a few training videos, made a couple of notes about the process, given them to her and told her to get on with it, right? So anything significant like that, any major repeating processes, think about how you can have that transition and look at potentially shadowing either with yourself or with whoever it is if you're bringing, if you've already got employees, having them shadow the person currently responsible for that. I also like to have a couple of small, low-stakes, one-off tasks or mini-projects that we can have new staff members take on too. So something where we can just give them an initial brief, some initial info, and then leave them to it to do things their own way. I think it's important to see how they get on when left to do things their way without you over their shoulders and making that part of what you have them do within their first month. In addition, it's going to have one or two fallback activities. You're not going to be able to hold your new team member's hand 24-7 during their initial few weeks, but you don't yet know, really, how long it'll take them to do some of the things that you have lined up for their first month. We've had times where we set a new team member a task that we thought would take all day, and they finished it within a few hours. You don't want them twiddling their thumbs and you don't want them coming back to you constantly saying, hey, can you just give me something else to do? Because I'm finished now. And then you've got to kind of try and scramble to give them a task to, to work on to keep them busy. So having some fallback tasks are really useful. Something that's ongoing that they can dip in and out of when they haven't got anything else on. So for example, again, with our content manager, we had them doing an audit of our existing blog content. That's something that we needed, but it wasn't something that's urgent, not something they had to work on 24-7. They could dip in and out of it, do a few articles or a few podcast episodes at a time in between calls, in between other tasks we had them working on. It was that fallback task, so they always had something there that they could be working on if they didn't have other priorities. For our graphic designer, we had a list of all their articles on the membershipguys.com website 
where the featured imagery, the artwork, kind of sucked or it didn't have custom artwork and we wanted them spruced up. Again, not urgent, but it's something that we did want doing and it's something that was never likely for us to do it because, you know, it was low down on the list. Having him do this work wasn't waste time and it was something he could dip into and out of as and when needed. And again, it's just given them more to do to get more accustomed to how we work, to essentially empower them to, you know, crack on without the constant need to be given stuff to work on. So all of that comes in very, very handy as well. So the aim is by the end of that first month, your new member should be nicely settled in. They've got a chance to work with or interact with other people on your team. They've got a grips with the main ongoing tasks that they're responsible for. They're clear on any must-do tasks or responsibilities daily, weekly, and monthly going forward. And they have everything they need to crack on. Communication throughout this period is key. Consider weekly catch-up calls, maybe even every day for that first week. Ask them, ask them, you know, what, what they prefer. Would they prefer every couple of days? Would they prefer a little check-in every morning? Have that communication. Recognize you'll need probably a little bit more within that first week. And encourage them to ask questions. Empower them to try new ways of doing things if they wish. And then going forward from there, I think, again, it's still just about communicating well, especially if they're working remote. Don't just leave people to their own devices and then never check in with them. Good communication, regular check-ins, cultivating that open environment where people aren't afraid to ask questions. They're not constantly being made to grind towards crazy deadlines and so on. And giving people space to come into their own, not micromanaging. Letting go of the work that they're now doing. It can be hard to do, especially if it's only been you and your business up until now, but that's just part of your personal growth as a manager. And as I said at the beginning, this is just what worked for us. It's based on our experiences so far. We brought on a bunch of extra team members full-time for the very first time towards the end of last year. And we're still learning as we're going. By no means do we have it perfect. But I would say from the quality of the people we brought on board, they are all fantastic They've blown us away with the work that they're doing. They've taken our business to a whole other level. And so, yeah, I'm by no means a foremost expert of recruitment, but everything I've talked about here mirrors what we've done uh, when bringing people onto our team. It's worked well for us. So I hope that some of what I've shared with you will help you to bring the right people into your business who will help you take your company, your membership even further. Wow, that turned into a long one, but hopefully it was a useful one for you if you are in a position where you're considering bringing on your very first employees. I would love to hear from you about whether this episode has been useful and what your plans are. It's exciting bringing on new people into your business, so I would love, love, love to hear from you. You can hit me up on Twitter at Membership Guys, on Instagram at Membership Guy, that's singular because Callie does her own thing on the gram, or of course inside our free Facebook group. If you go to talkmemberships.com, that's talk, as in talk, T-A-L-K, memberships.com, 
that URL will redirect you to our Facebook group where you can join over 18,000 membership owners. And we will be having a conversation about this on the back of today's episode. So I would love to hear whether this episode has helped you, what your plans are with recruiting, whether you have any stories from when you first hired people, maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. Any tips you have to share as well will all be welcome. That is it from me. I'll be back again next week with another installment of the Membership Guys podcast. I'll see you then. If you enjoyed this week's episode of the Membership Guys podcast, we invite you to check out membershipacademy.com. The Membership Academy is the essential resource for anyone at any stage of starting, growing and running a membership website. Whether you're still trying to figure out what your idea is going to be, or whether your website's already up and running and you're just looking for ways to grow it and attract new members, then the Membership Academy can help you to get to the next level. With our extensive course library, step-by-step membership roadmap, exclusive member-only discount perks and tools, as well as our supportive, active community that will help you along the way with feedback, encouragement and advice, the Membership Academy is the perfect place to be for anyone looking to start, manage and grow a successful membership business. Check it out at membershipacademy.com. Do you want to boost your member signups and take your membership to the next level? If so, you're not going to want to miss the free webinar that I'm running on Tuesday the 26th of March. It's called Supercharge Your Membership Sales and it is entirely free. During the webinar, you will learn how to level up your core membership sales funnel for more traffic leads and sales. You'll discover the biggest roadblocks that could be costing you sales right now and most importantly, how to fix them. And we're going to cover the key tactics that you need to have in place to successfully market and scale your membership. Plus, you get the opportunity to tap into my years of expertise in the membership space and have me help solve your current sales and marketing challenges. So, If you want to take your membership sales to the next level, join me on Tuesday, March 26th at 7pm UK time and go to membershipgeeks.com slash webinar. That's membershipgeeks.com slash webinar to secure your free seat today.